0: Thanks for checking out the Citizens Podcast. We are the high school student ministry at Maranatha Bible Church, and we meet on Sundays at 11 a.m. in the student wing. If you enjoy this podcast, we would love it if you posted it on your Instagram story and tag at NBC Citizens. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for the opportunity to be together um, to open up your word and. Um, to get to praise you as a body of believers here this morning. Um, So grateful for all that you've done for us. And uh, so grateful that we get to come and worship a holy God. Um, Lord, we thank you uh, again for uh, each person that's here this morning. I pray that as we open up your word, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you, guys. How's everybody doing? Good morning? (laughs) Awesome. Good morning. Um, Hey, thank you, man. Appreciate it. Hey, this morning, um, I want to start off uh, with a quick illustration, and I want you guys to use your creativity and try to, uh, you know, imagine yourself, envision yourself in this position, but think of you getting into a lunch line, if you may. You get into the lunch line, you grab your lunch, you have a tray of food or plate of food, whatever it is, and the next thing you do after that is immediately you look to your friends. You look and you try to find the group of people that you always sit around, that you like sitting around, your friends, Um, and you obviously sit down and enjoy your lunch. Now, imagine in that moment you're looking around, right? Doesn't matter whether it's a camp, whether it's at school. Most of us, I think, can relate to that feeling. You're looking around, but you don't see your friends. And so what happens is you just sit down with maybe some kids that you kind of know, kids that you don't often sit with, but you sit down with them anyways. Uh, It's better than city alone, and nobody wants to do that. So you go and you sit with these people. Um, However, like I said, these aren't the people you necessarily hang around all the time. These might be kids that, um, you know, perhaps in society's eyes, aren't the most popular kids. These might even be kids from church that you might sit around, Um, but when you're at school, you're not really around these people. You don't associate them with them all that much. You're sitting at that table, and all of a sudden, you see your friends come in, right? Right? You see your friends come in and they're heading to a table. I know that you guys understand that feeling where it's like, well, how do I get out of here and go sit with them? How am I going to find a way to get up? Some of us just unashamedly get up. Some of us maybe excuse ourselves. We find different ways to leave and go sit with our friends. But that feeling and actually prompting ourselves to go and do that is what I want to talk about today. We're not going to necessarily see that context specifically this morning with the passage that we read in Galatians 2, but I want us to be thinking about that kind of situation and not necessarily thinking about um, whatever reason it may be because the reason may be different for all of us. Um, I want us to think as well about the implications, the implication that that, that has on the people that maybe are still there, Right? We may not say it, we may not use our words to say things, but what do our actions say? What is our actions, right? The, the action of us getting up and leaving to go sit with other people, what, what does that often say to the people that are behind? And then, again, taking that same Kind of situation, and then putting that in this context is what I want us to focus on this morning. The reason why we'll find Peter getting up and leaving the group that he was with, and what message that sends to them, what that was communicating to them, is what I want to talk about this morning. This morning, as we look at Galatians chapter 2, we're going to be following up on the message that Paul was expanding upon in chapter one. In chapter one, Paul again, if you weren't here with us, he made it very clear that justification is only through Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. And in chapter two, we're going to see a pretty intense, dramatic episode happen where there are two leading apostles of Jesus face-to-face and they have some kind of conflict there. It is uh, It is something that's pretty awkward, I would assume, Um, but there was something massive at stake here. There was something that was really important that Paul was addressing, and he had to address. What we'll find in this passage here as we read Galatians 2 was that we see Peter didn't necessarily see the issue. Barnabas even didn't see the issue, but Paul did. In verse 21 as he comes to a close, he says, uh, "He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. And some translations, as you read that passage, your translation may say frustrate in verse 21, but I really do believe that this word here, nullify, is the perfect uh, use of this word and really gives us a sense of what's happening here because that word nullify, it means to make something void, to cancel something out, to make it invalid. And so, what we read here is that uh, the grace of God was being nullified, and surprisingly so, that was happening. Um, We'll see today how that can happen even in our own lives without us even realizing it, right? without us even noticing. And again, maybe not even through our words, but through our actions, the things that we do. And it's important for us to have people like Paul people with courageous voices, people who are calling us back to the true doctrine that we find in God's word and what we believe in abundant lives. And we see in this passage this confrontation take place, a confrontation that addresses this idea of legalism, which is another word we often hear when we're at church. Uh, legalism really is the dependence on moral law, people who are legalistic, um, We see how sometimes there's this human issue that happens here even uh, where we, again, as we read in chapter one, combine the two, mix in the law with justification, with salvation, when really we understand that the gospel is not based on what we do, but solely on what God has done by sending his son to die for us. It is Jesus who makes us righteous, not ourselves. So again, we see that he addresses this, that justification is by faith alone, and therefore it is above legalism. Um, You know, we're not protected against that idea. We're not immune or prone uh, to being legalistic. We find even here that an apostle of, of Jesus, he finds himself in a, in a, in a, uncomfortable situation, and he happens to act in a way that is even contradictory to his own beliefs, and it shows us, again, reminds us that if we're not careful, if we're not attentive, we too can make mistakes. We're not far removed or above making those mistakes, and so, again, as we look at this passage, I want us to understand that nullifying the grace of God is something that is a constant danger, something that we have to keep our eyes um open about. We have to be aware of this danger, make sure that we are aligned with and consistent with the true gospel, and that takes clarity and courage what Paul has here in this moment. Justification, right? The, the, The justification that we receive by faith alone is one, a gateway for new believers to be converted, to come to know Christ, but it is also a pathway for us to walk in Christ. When we think about the gospel, I don't want us to just think about the gospel and see it as something that we believe to, to attain a relationship with God, to be saved, to have eternal life. It's not uh, the beginning of our walk with God and then we just push it to the side, but the gospel is something that we walk in every single day. It should be at the forefront of our minds. It should be something that dictates our lives. The gospel is not something we ever outgrow or we grow past and that's why it's important for us to keep emphasizing it, being reminded of it. And we're going to see that throughout this book, as we said last week, that this is a constant theme. And it's going to keep coming up, but it's important that we understand why that is. So today, I want us to understand again that uh, we have to be careful in nullifying the grace of God. And this message, again in chapter 1, does not change that justification is through God by faith in Jesus Christ, nothing more, nothing less. And yet in this passage, in chapter two, we see, of course, in chapter one, there is one gospel, one true gospel, and everything else. And in this chapter, he talks about how this gospel, this one gospel, is for all of us. It's for everyone. Regardless of your background, regardless of what you have done, where you come from, what you look like, what language you speak. The gospel is for all of us. It's not about what we do. It's not about the things, like I said, that we um, believe that make us righteous, the acts that we do. It's all about what Jesus has done, and that invitation is open for everyone, and in this case, to Jews and to Gentiles. Follow along with me, if you will, in verse... 11 of chapter 2, this is what Paul says. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, and Cephas, just want to stop right there real quick. Cephas is, again, Peter. Uh, Cephas is just uh, his name in a different language. It means stone in Aramaic. Peter means stone in Greek. Um, but Cephas, when you see that, he is talking about Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Um, This is what he says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, before they came from Jerusalem, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct... I was not, uh, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith The three questions I want to look at today as we expound on these few verses here is one, what's the gospel? What's the problem? And what's the solution? Hopefully we'll look at each and every one of us uh, of those things this morning. And first, of course, we're going to be starting by asking that question, what's the gospel? The gospel we find in verse 16. And again, we've already talked about this a few minutes ago and have opened up with speaking about the gospel. We find it here again in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Free justification in which we are made righteous in the eyes of God, is something that we should desire to share with other people, something that we should aspire to to communicate with others, the people we care about, the people that we love. As a matter of fact, we have that calling. We have the command. We should stand with Paul in the sense that we understand that the all-sufficient Jesus Christ has justified the ungodly. And you might ask yourself, well, how can I be right with God? The only way we can be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for us, where he lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live, and he died on the cross for us. And then three days later, he rose again. Now he is seated at the right hand of God, and and, and God no longer sees those who believe in him as sinners, but he sees that righteousness of his Son imputed upon us. It's almost as though we'd never sinned or we've not been a sinner. Not because we haven't, because we are sinners. But again, because God sees his son. When he looks down at his children, when he sees believers, you and I, he sees his perfect son. The one who is perfectly obedient on our behalf. And all we have to do is accept that free gift of salvation with believing hearts. Justification is an act of God's free grace, and it's something we can rejoice in, because we know God is satisfied with all of His people, not by anything we have done, not even because of our own faith, but only because of the all-sufficiency work of Jesus, which we receive by faith. That is the gospel. That is the gospel that Paul believes. The gospel that we understand, and even as we will continue to read, the one that Peter knows. But as we continue to read again, we find in this passage here a problem. And as we get to the problem, we find in a few of these verses that the church in Antioch was largely a Gentile church, right? Most of that church was made up of Gentiles but there was a mixture of Jewish people and Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. And here, we see that the early believers are having what is understood to be and known as a love feast. And this typically happens, God bless you, this typically happens in connection with in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. And so when they're having this feast and they're celebrating before the love supper, of the Lord's Supper, a problem arises. There's a there's a complication that happens because of these Gentile believers, right? Gentile believers, they were accustomed to eating what? They were accustomed to eating uh, foods that had been sacrificed or had been offered up to these idols. And and the Jewish people, um, they didn't typically do that. That that was not part of their um, uh, law, right? They even before Jesus, they had restrictions and dietary laws uh, that they followed. And so foods like pork, right? Rest in peace, bacon. um, They didn't eat that kind of stuff. And that stunk. Um, But they didn't eat all that stuff because there were laws, there were restrictions, limitations, and even foods that were offered up as sacrifice. They didn't hear it. They didn't eat that stuff. And it's not often that, you know, we get to have a sermon uh, in the main auditorium that aligns so perfectly with what we're learning in here um but i encourage you if you didn't listen this morning to the message in the main auditorium to do so because it fits perfectly with what we're saying and helps you understand um even you know not just the weaker brother which is the overall theme but he talks specifically about foods that had been offered up um In this case, again, we see a practical example of that. We see how this is in play, we see how this is actually happening in real time, and there's a situation that presents itself, that arises, and where there is this conflict. How do we solve this issue, this problem, where there are Gentiles that eat these foods that the Jewish people do not eat? These Jewish Christians, they they don't eat the same food, so how can we appeal to both, how can we have this feast and not offend the Jewish people? It's not necessarily a right or wrong thing, but how can we do this um, to the best of our abilities? And so what they did, what they concluded on, was in Antioch during this time, they created two different tables. So they had the Gentile table, and they had the Jewish table. The Jewish table was the kosher table which was the foods that, of course, align with their Jewish law, um, their dietary um, laws and restrictions. And again, Paul, he was a Jew, he had a Jewish background, but although he was a Jewish man, he sat with the Gentiles. He sat with the Gentiles and ate with them. He sat at their table and ate their food. And as we heard this morning, it's because he understood that was not a direct command from God that we shouldn't do those things, right? right? Although we have these preferences and they, and they wanted to continue to follow these laws and restrictions, and they had every right to do that, um, he understood that that was not something that condemns us or justifies us in God's eyes. And so freely and, and willingly, he went and ate with the Gentiles. It made no difference. He understood that it did not condemn him. It's a liberty they had, and that wasn't forbidden by God. He goes, and he sits with them. Peter, Peter also knew this. He understood this truth that, again, this isn't something that is wrong. But, again, he was a Jewish man, and when he came to Paul's home church in Antioch, he most likely went and still had his Jewish eating pattern. Right? He, didn't, he, he probably didn't go and sit with the Gentiles. He still had uh, that custom of following the law. Now, what I presume probably happened was something along the lines of this. Now, this is not saying this is scripture, but you can assume that in order to get to the point that we find in scripture, something along these lines probably happened. Peter, again, comes to visit his home church, he comes to see Paul, comes to Antioch. And he arrives for this feast. And he shows up and he's eating. And I don't know, you know, imagine that you're on the other end of that illustration that we talked about in the beginning, right? We see our friends when we're sitting away from them, but a lot of the times we see them. Um, And so Paul is sitting with the Gentiles, as we know. Peter shows up and he's probably seeing them eat together. He's sitting with others at the Jewish table, but he sees Paul, who is a Jewish man, sitting with the Gentiles and eating those foods. Peter probably noticed that and then approached him afterwards, probably asked him, he's like, man, and I smelled something heavenly over there. What was that? And he's like, well, my friend, it was bacon. It was pork. Um, And he's probably asking, well, it smells amazing. How does it taste? It probably tastes phenomenal. Um, and as any right person would be enticed by bacon, he was probably lured into, you know, maybe I want to try this. This is, you know, I know that there's nothing inherently wrong with this. It's this not condemning me. Um, and I want, I want to actually try some of that food. Um, and so the next time they eat, you would imagine that he goes and sits with Paul and he sits with these other Gentiles and he eats these foods with them. He enjoys it because he goes back <laughs> he goes back to that table. But when he goes to this feast and he, and he is sitting at that table, at this time, during this meal, something changes. Something happens. What happens is, is he sees these men come in from Jerusalem. These men who had uh, a Jewish background, Jewish Christians coming in and immediately he gets afraid. He's afraid and he fears. And so what he does is, as he's, making a way, as he's making his way to that table again, he just loops around, most likely, passes them, and goes and sits with the Jewish table. He goes back to those people. He goes back to that table. And I want us to notice why that's not necessarily a wrong thing to do, but the reason he does is. And what he is inferring is vital. When he goes back, he is going back because he is afraid of what the other elders from that church in Jerusalem would think. He heads back to that table, and as he goes and sits at the kosher table, this is where Paul stands up and confronts him. This is when Paul steps up and he sees what's happening and he says something when we read in verse 16 and verse 14. Or, the truth is Peter eating at either table again is totally fine. There's not a right or wrong in this case eating with the Gentiles or the Jewish people but leaving the Gentiles out of fear for the elders to go back to the kosher table, is saying something to the Gentiles. And what it's saying to the Gentiles is this. This table is wrong, and this table is right. He didn't use his words, but through his fear, and based on what he thought they would think, he was submissive to that instead of understanding what God really says. And he says, okay, well, through his actions, this is not the place I should be. I should be over here. This is the right table. And he doesn't necessarily verbalize that, but his actions communicate that. And in verse 14, we read this problem. It says, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, again, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And at the very end, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, believers, we often have differences when it comes to the law of God, and to some degree, um, that happens within different denominations, that happens even within our church, right? Right? As we talked about this morning with people and their convictions and their understandings and their interpretations. But one of the things that we should be very clear on and not have any questions or um, even, you know, opposing views on is the law of God and the righteousness of the gospel and how they largely differ from one another. There is room for debate when it comes to certain things uh, within within the things that we see in scripture, but this is not something that, that we should have debates about. This is a completely different matter. The gospel, the grace of God. And that's the point that Paul has here. It's that he doesn't want them to fur on the justifying grace of God. Last week, we talked about this perversion, distortion of the gospel. We talked about how that's not the gospel at all. The word distortion there is inferring the complete opposite of something. And so the message that these people were starting to hear was not the gospel at all. So we understand, we know that this distortion, this perversion is happening uh, in this church in Galatia. What we find Peter doing here is seemingly almost going and slipping into that direction where he is complicating the law of God. And, And God, he had used Peter before. Peter was somebody that was used to bring Gentile Christians to the Lord without any precondition of becoming Jews. But here in Antioch, he refused to associate with Gentile Christians once certain Jewish believers arrived, when they showed up. These Christians with Jewish backgrounds, Paul knew and Peter knew they would have been offended to see Peter sit with these people. As a matter of fact, Paul knew, Peter knew, that these people of this background, they didn't even believe that these Gentiles who had not come under the law of God were actually real Christians. Based off of their laws, based off of what they do, based on their own lifestyles, and because they follow God's law. And again, having brought in, following the law with justification being saved they would say well they're probably not even really christians they don't follow the laws like we do the dietary restrictions right for example is just one of them these people these people did not believe that they were christians at all and yet as peter leaves these gentile christians him leaving these gentile christians was him treating them in the same way. You know, Paul is not opposed or he is not worried better, yet the doctrine of justification by grace alone would start to exert too much influence. He was worried that it wouldn't exert influence enough. And so he spoke very clearly and very directly. Again, he has not minced his word thus far in this book, whether it's in communication directly with the Galatians or even in the examples that he's used here in speaking to Peter, he is very clear. He is not somebody that is <laughs> worried about having an awkward situation. Again, we see that because he is not concerned with what other peoples uh, will think of him, right? His authority and his focus, as we learned last week, he was there to please God, not man. So when he sees this happen, he speaks up. Again, in a weird situation there. However, he needs to address this. Because oftentimes we make, uh, we make this uh, minimizing of the gospel not the sincere issue that it really is. And so when he sees this, he addresses it. And unfortunately, this is something that is very common and can be common even amongst ourselves today, right? The, the, act, the attitudes, the, the deeds, the things, the relationships deny, that deny what we sincerely profess. There's this very basic, I would say, very popular, common term. Uh, it's called, well, it goes something like this, actions speak louder than words, Right? Everybody here has heard of it. If you've not heard that once before in your life, you're lying. Uh, I'm sure that you have. But actions speak louder than words. We can defeat the advance of the gospel despite how well we understand God's word by the kind of people we are and the kind of conduct we display, especially with our relationships with one another. Peter, if you go back a little bit in the Bible and you go to Acts, in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, he understood that Gentiles were equally as acceptable before Christ through a vision that he has. If you go there and you'll see that while he was in Caesarea, while he is there, he sees Gentile believers as equal. In all of their gentileness, if you could say, because Jews or because Jesus alone was enough, and so it didn't matter if uh, if you were Jewish, it didn't matter if you were a gentile, whatever background you were from, he understood Jesus was enough, and that gospel was for all. They tried to give him special honor when he was there. They came before him, and he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of. Of Jesus he was an apostle he was a Jewish man and they bowed before him they tried to honor him because he was a Jew and they tried to clean his feet as he entered into the Gentiles home but despite the despite the customs despite what was normal then right how the Jewish people would never actually step foot in a Gentile home he he he, he walks right in He comes in because he understood that we are all on the same level when it comes to us standing before God. And we read that in Acts chapter 10 again, and I'll read the verses for you. When Peter entered, entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he walked with him and talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. This wonderful new unity of believers in Christ alone was obvious to him, but somehow in Antioch, he's lost sight of that. And in verse 12, we see For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Again, these men who followed the law, who are coming from Jerusalem. His behavior does not display that there is one body, one spirit, and one Lord. When we go back to the Gospels, we find that he denied Jesus three times because he feared what would happen to him physically, right? He fears what would happen to him with his association with Jesus. Now we see that he fears his reputation being affected, And with his actions, he implies there are two levels of justification, super-justification for believing Jews and a sub-justification for believing Gentiles. Peter in Antioch is ironically rebuilding the walls of exclusion that he had broken down in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. When he understands that God, we are all equal in his eyes, he understands that and believes that. And Now, when we find him in Antioch, He's no longer, no longer living that out. His understanding and his beliefs, we don't see that come into play because his attitude is fear driven. Now, the problem here is not rudeness and the solution is not being nice. It's not the problem here. It's not Oh, the, the, the solution is, oh, go sit with these people. Just go be nice to them. We have to be nice to everybody. That's not what the problem is here. What he is saying is that Gentile justification was inferior to Jewish justification and that everyone would naturally have to get used to that and that there was two tiers of the body of Christ. The Jewish people were above everybody and everybody else was below. That's the insinuation here. And that's why Paul says what he does. That's why he is so firm. And, and, and passionate about what he says. That unless, of course, those Gentiles would add to their justification by following the law, that they would then be justified in that same level. If, if the Gentiles also got up and ate at that kosher table, now you are justified. Okay, now you are right with God. If you're going to eat here at this table and eat these things... Follow the law of God? Okay, now you're a Christian. Now you're following Jesus. Now you are accepted by him. That was the problem. Paul says, "But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the true gospel, I came before them all. And he says this, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This psychological power of exclusion that Peter is talking about is important for us to understand, right? This almost psychological forcing on people and pressuring them. I don't know if you've ever been on an airplane before. Who here has ever been in a first class? All right. Well, wherever you are, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up with you after this message. Um, get your contact. Next time you fly and you have any spare tickets, let me know. Um, listen, even if you've never flown in first class, you know what I'm talking about. You pass through first class and you see first class, and what you do you want to do? You want to sit in first class. It is quite the experience. I've never done it myself, but I would assume that most people that are sitting in first class, having been offered uh, the opportunity, anybody else, would willingly go to first class first class, right, it's not something most of us have experienced. However, I will say that if you have experienced it, you probably don't ever want to fly any other way because you know what it's like. Now, when it comes to this, this exertion of, of pressure, expectation for other people, right? in order to make a man or a boy covet a thing, it is necessary to make it difficult to attain. That's, that's something that is a, a, a quote, a, a pretty common understanding. I don't know if you've ever experienced that personally, but some of you are probably driven and are driven by having to work towards something and attaining that thing, making it difficult. You enjoy that. But we see here, that we can rejoice in the full stature of Christ and that it is easy to attain, that by faith alone anyone who needs Christ can receive it, right? This hierarchy thing, when we talk about not offering any levels, um, first class, for example, it is appealing, right? Because it appeals to our pride. It appeals to our insecurities. And so if a Jewish person would to offer, right, these different levels, although they're not saying anything, just the representation of that separation is gonna, is gonna change the way the Gentiles think. Even though Paul doesn't, say, or Peter doesn't say anything, they're gonna be thinking about this separation that, that is taking place, this divide. Um, when we think about our own churches, when we think about separation within our churches and, and, and the struggles that we have with others, you know, saying, oh, well, my church is better because we have this, or my church is better because we have that. We're more modern. More churches will maybe say, well, I'm, I'm glad that we're more traditional, whatever it may be, but we find that this rift often happens, that there's these levels and these tiers. Oh, we're better in this, or we do that. I don't want us to see this place as a place where we improperly demand anything from anybody, that we're asking you to do things in your own walk with God that has nothing to do with God, is actually saying. And if you felt that you've been pushed to do something or that you feel like um, maybe you can never achieve um, that level, maybe you feel, oh, I'll never measure up based on what I hear or based on what I read, I want to let you know that you are received and that God does love you. Because it's not what we do. It's not the law that we follow. It's not the things that we can do to earn justification or to find favor in his eyes. It is all that Jesus has done for us. And that is the solution. The solution here, as I wrap up really quick, is found in verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me whatever those men from the circumcision party were thinking or those jewish people from that jewish background that followed the law whatever it is that was motivating them it wasn't the assurance of love of jesus christ whatever peter was thinking it wasn't the overflowing of love that is found in god and in christ for them Whatever our hearts drift away from a wonderful sense of awareness that the Son of God has given life for us, whenever our hearts cools towards that and grows numb towards that, that is when we are weakened and we too fall apart. The felt love of Jesus for us personally is a pathway towards recovery and unity. If we do not love him first, he isn't living by faith in us. He loved us and gave his son for each of us. And his love should move us. It should move in our hearts. and should be clear to us. His dying love for us personally. Only then can we stand strong and step with the truth of the gospel together. As I close, I just want to say this. The law did not love us. The law did not send its son to die for you and for me. God did. Jesus died for you. And he fulfilled the law. He accomplished it. He is enough. Jesus is enough. What he has done for you is enough. It's not what we do. He understands this. And and we have to be mindful of understanding it, but also in the way that we behave. The things that we say, the things that we act. Do our actions reflect that the gospel is for everybody? or there are people that we treat as if they are lost causes, that Jesus doesn't love them, that he is not enough for them. Oh, that's too many sins. He can't cover all of that. Again, this gospel, this one true gospel is not just for you and for me. It's for everybody. Despite of your background, despite of what the person has done, what they look like, and what they say, the gospel for them as well. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for sending your son to die for us and for offering us your son um, and for having him sent down to live a perfect life, a life we could not live ourselves. And him uh, dying on the cross for us, although he never sinned, he, he died for our sins. And Lord, through him, we can have a relationship with you. We can be saved. I pray that we would understand this gospel and understand that it is for all, for everyone. and something that we can do that can earn us salvation or favor in your eyes, but it is only what you have done. Thank you, Lord, for this day. I pray that as we head on out, Lord, we would be inspired by this truth, that we would desire to go out into the world and share it with others. Um, and Lord, understand that it's what we're called to do, Lord. We thank you again for all that you have done, and, and, and everybody said amen. All right, guys, good morning, and uh, citizen. Hope you guys have a great day.